Have you ever seen a, a Men in Black movie? Have you ever seen one of those? Remember the uh, first one came out while we were in college? And in there, if you don't know the movies, they're about this FBI-style police force. Obviously fictional because the Men in Black protect Earth against aliens. And uh, the Men in Black, the story goes, are part of the reason that most of us don't know that aliens are real because they keep us from knowing what we hadn't ought to know. Uh, and so to that end, in the movie, when people uh, witness stuff they shouldn't witness with alien activity, the men in black have these things called neuralizers. And if I had a black pen, this would work better, but they look like a little pen light. You remember this if you saw the movie? They hold up a neuralizer, and so they gather the people around who have witnessed stuff they shouldn't have witnessed, and they, they get them to look at that neuralizer, and they set a timer to the time just before they saw whatever they shouldn't have seen. And at the flash of a light, everything between the time on that timer and the flash of that light is just erased from the memory of the person who, who looked at that neuralizer. That's the men in black. Now, in some ways, it would be nice if those things were real, and if God would like administer them to churches and to pastors. Here's my idea. If neuralizers were real, and people came to Christ, people believed, people were, as Paul would say, they were justified by faith. They came to understand, oh, wait a minute. Jesus, the reason he died was because my death penalty was served in him. He was paying for the, the punishment I deserve. I should have been killed like that. And he was in my place. And now I get his righteousness. When that happened, someone gets it. They become a believer. Like I as a pastor could pull out the neuralizer and we could selectively go through your life before you came to Christ and we could erase a bunch of the junk you brought with you from your old life into your new life with Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome? We could, the old habits that you had before you came to know Christ, the old, the old painful experiences you experienced and the unhealthy ways you developed to deal with those painful experiences. Zap, gone. In some ways, that'd be great. Now, in other ways, it wouldn't because... God doesn't waste our pain. It would be nice if those things were real, but they're not. Be we all bring with us into our relationship with Christ baggage, like junk from our old life of sin. And because that is true, as Christians, we will struggle against sin in this life. And that struggle is very real. Paul is going to write today, uh, very famously in Romans chapter 7, about his own struggle against sin. He's going to write very personally. Um, he's going to write in the first person. This is Paul's story. Uh, before we even read it, though, I want you to know that Paul's main point in this passage is not just to share with you that he struggles with sin 
also. That's not his main point. He's going to share that. His main point is that the law is not enough to make us good. And that's, Paul said, I'll, I'll show you. I'll prove you. I'll prove it to you. I'll, in my life, nobody knows the law better than me. Nobody knows the rules better than me. But knowing the rules and the law is not enough to make us good. The law is very good at showing us our sin. But the law doesn't really motivate real goodness. It might motivate us to not want to do this stuff to be better. But real like goodness where I, I want to see God's best done in someone else's life. That, that motivation has to come from someplace else. That will be Paul's, Paul's main point. Let's read this passage, uh, this, this very personal look at Paul's struggle. Uh, and some of it might sound pretty familiar to, to some of us. Click me one time there, Sid. I should be okay then. Okay, so Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, they read this way. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that sin might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Sold into bondage of sin. The law is good, but it's not enough. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing, I'm, excuse me, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, and I am. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. Okay, since the beginning of chapter 6, so lots of ser sermons now for us, Paul is in this pattern where he asks a rhetorical question and then he answers it. His, his question for today is, is this one. 
Did that which is good then become death to me? Here's what Paul is saying. Paul has just said in the previous paragraph, last week's sermon, that uh, he, was, he asked this, Paul, do you think the law is sin? Is the law itself bad? And Paul said, no, may it never be. And he answered that the law is good. So now the question is this, well, did that good law then, is it responsible for the death of all of those people who will die because they've transgressed the law? That's the question. Is the law responsible for killing people? In short, Paul's answer is, well, the same one he's been answering so far. May it never be. Absolutely not. No way. And then Paul says, the law doesn't kill people. Sin kills people. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law's job, you can probably answer this question by now, I hope. What is the law's job, according to Paul? Is it to make us good? No. Somebody just take a chance to say it out there. What's, what's the law for? To show us we're not good. To, yes, to make us aware of our sin. Paul says it again. But sin, so that it would be shown to be sin, produced death in me through what is good. And through the commandment, we see that sin is utterly sinful. Paul, he's told us this already. He's told us this before. Paul's repeating himself. The, the law is not responsible for anyone's death. It is sin. The law is good. It's we who have the problem. The second part, oh, I read that already. The law shows us our sin. It's that straight edge that shows us how crooked we are. It's that makeup mirror that shows us our filth. And Paul has said, has said this before too. Once we know the law, we don't get better. Uh, the law, having the law, knowing the law, understanding the law makes our sin sinnier. Because now we know. And now when we transgress the law, we're no longer sinning in ignorance. Paul's already told us we would be guilty before God even if all our sins were in ignorance. That's the first section of the book of Romans. But now, speaking to people who know, he always says, the law didn't make you better. It makes you worse because now you know, yet you still transgress. You sin against the law. The behavioral commands in Scripture, they can show us what God expects. They can show us God's holiness but they give us no ability to do those things. It doesn't motivate goodness because the law doesn't change hearts. The law can make us want to have that righteousness that comes by the law, but it doesn't give us a heart that can pull it off. But none of that's a problem with the law. The problem's us. The problem is the sin that we now willfully sin. And part of, this, part of this passage is just the truth that we are going to sin no matter how much of the rules we know. That's what Paul is saying in verse 14, where he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, then Paul switches to the, to the first person. The rest of this passage is going to be Paul saying, I, me. 
The law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold into slavery to sin. Here's what Paul's saying there. When Paul says the law is spiritual, Paul is saying the law is higher like, than us. The law, spiritual meaning like holy spiritual. The law agrees 100% with God's heart. So there's nothing wrong with the law. If we could perform the law all the days of our life perfectly, we would be spiritual in this sense. We would agree 100% with God. But we don't. Paul said, I am unspiritual. Your Bible might, might translate that. Sarkonos is the Greek word. Your Bible might say carnal there. It might say fleshly there. Those are all the same idea if you take them the right way. The, the law is spiritual. It agrees with God. And I am not. We can understand this as human. The law is spiritual. It's like divine. And I'm human. I'm a human who was born, sold into slavery to sin. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is us. And now Paul's going to launch into his personal testimony about how he's seen this work out in his, in his life. Paul said, I am the one who's carnal, who's unspiritual. I am the one with these struggles. But before I go on to, to describe this struggle against sin that I think we all feel, we all can recognize, uh, I do want you to hear me say this before we dive into this. What we're going to read today is not a full picture of the Christian life. Okay, chapter 8's coming. There is victory over sin. It'll never be complete. Um, it'll, it will never be full on this life. This struggle is going to continue. But it's just important to, I think, to just sort of put out there these, these concepts that Paul gives that seem to contradict one another. Like this. Paul has told us, our old man is dead to sin. I, Matt Maxwell, the bad part of me, was crucified with Christ I'm dead to sin. That's true. But then today, Paul is going to go through the very real struggle we continue to have with sin. How can both of those things be true? Well, it's because neuralizers aren't real. Right? I brought junk baggage I brought a body that was born into slavery to sin that's still not been perfected yet. I brought that with me into this relationship with Christ. My brain, my emotions, my body are, have not yet been perfected. They're going to be. They are going to be. Just not here. Um... I wanted to come up with an illustration to help us understand how both these things could be true. My old man is dead, yet I still sin in my flesh. And so it made me think, uh, I want to compare us to cattle this morning. Is that okay? <laughs> um, there, are, 
there are several people in our church who are in the cattle business, and we probably should just have a moment of silence for those people. We want to give our deepest condolences for those of you who are in the cattle business during this time. But that's not the illustration. That's just the way the world is right now. Uh, let's say I'm going to pick on Travis because he's closest. Right? Travis and Kelly have, they have cattle, right? Well, let's say, for whatever weird reason, uh, they fell under the conviction that like, growing animals for meat is wrong. Um, I don't share that, you know, but let's just say, they don't share that either, but let's, let's just say that was the reality. And they, we, I'd help them find a new church after I kicked them out of here. Not really. Um, uh, but let's just say that that was their conviction. We're not doing this anymore. This is wrong. We shouldn't have these, these cattle cooped up. And so they went out to the fences in their pasture, in the feedlot, wherever. They opened them up, opened them up and said, run away, cows. You're free. You've been set free. Hallelujah. Um, what would the cows do? They would experience different like levels of freedom. Some of them, they can probably tell you which ones would be gone. Like gone, gone. Right? Some of them might make it all the way to the Frenchman and all the way to the Republican and they'd find some holler someplace and go full on feral and you'd never see them again. They would be free indeed. Some of them would leave for a while. Some of them would probably just join some other herd someplace else. And some of them would look up at that empty gate and go right back to eating wherever they were eating. Or they might go outside a little bit, but as soon as whatever vehicle fires up that brings them food on occasion, they would go right back into that feedlot and, and go right back to the habits they had. This is where I eat. This is, this is kind of who I've always been. Even though that lifestyle is headed for the slaughterhouse. That's how you and I are a little bit like these hypothetically freed bovines. Jesus Christ. Except we knew our lifestyle was headed for slaughter. We knew. Jesus Christ, through, through grace, has opened up the gate. It will never be closed again. We are free. And it was for freedom we've been set free. Sometimes we all hear the, the rumbling motor of that old feed wagon. And we walk right back into the bondage of the habits we used to have. So you can all tell your friends, our pastor called us cows, and I think I understood it. Right? That's how you know I write my own sermons, right? right? Nobody else is making these things up. All right. Jesus Christ has opened the gate that set us free by grace. But walking and living in that freedom often takes a lot of struggle. In fact, it takes a lifetime of struggle. And when Paul, as he's going to do now, when Paul dives in to the struggle against sin, Paul does not say this from some pie-in-the-sky vantage point. Paul doesn't look down his nose at all those sinners who are still struggling with sin. 
Paul says, I want to tell you about my struggle. Paul doesn't name his sin, whatever sins he's struggling with. He's purposefully vague so that this can be our story too. And I just want to go through this quickly because I want to spend more time talking about what we learn from this. But these are some of the most famous verses in, in Romans. Paul cries out in the desperation, the depression that comes from failing this failure again. In 15 and 16, he says, basically, I don't understand why I'm like this. Ever felt that one? I don't get why I'm still like this. I want to do good, to do right, to be better, and I don't. I don't want to do all this junk, and I do, and I don't understand why I do what I hate. I know what's right and what's wrong. And I can't do it. You know, it's, it's almost like that, even though that old me is dead, like that old dead body of sin is still tied to this new me by a rope I just can't cut. It's not my illustration. I stole that one. I stole this one too. Others have said sin in the Christian is like a squatter. You know what a squatter is? Like if you buy a, a rental house, a rental property, and you go there and you find someone's like living in there. You own it. They don't have the right to be there, but it can be really hard to get them out of there. As Christians, sin has no right to live in me. But man, is it hard to get evicted. Verse 17, Paul speaks to that. Don't misunderstand verse 17 here. Paul says, it's no longer me doing it, but it's that squatter sin that lives in me. Don't misunderstand this one. Don't pull it out and read it by itself. It can seem like Paul is passing the buck on his culpability and his responsibility. Hey, don't blame me. It's sin that lives in me. That wasn't me that did that. Well, he can't be saying that. Because look what he just said in the previous two verses. What I am doing. I do not do what I want. I do what I hate. Paul's already said, I am the one that did that stuff. So then when he says, but it's not me, it's sin that lives in me. Paul knows the real me. Where Paul says in the, to Ephesians, I'm already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. I am so changed. I'm so righteous. It's like I'm already there with him. And where in this inner man where he lives in me, I'm already perfect. But sin is still in me. The re, it's like the real me I want to be. The real me I really am. Sometimes lets the squatter run the house. Even though I'm free to, to not before I came to Christ, I really had no choice. We can really hear Paul's frustration in verse 18, where he says, 
I know that nothing good lives in me. You ever, you ever feel like that? Now he does add, that is, in my flesh, I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. We know Paul would never say, literally as true, nothing good lives in me, full stop. Because Paul knows the Holy Spirit of God lives in him. But verse 18 is what, is what we all think and feel. When here I am again, I'm just nothing good in me. I'm such a failure. I am such a louse. I am such a loser. I'm worthless. And in my flesh, I've got a point. Again, this is not the whole story. We don't live life in the flesh. Come back for the next couple weeks and we'll talk about it. But in the law, that's just trying harder and failing over and over and over. And I'm a failure because I couldn't do what I can't do. Verses 19 through 23, if you read those again, they'll sound very familiar. You know why? He's repeating himself. I think Paul wants to paint this picture. I don't want you Romans to think this, is, this only happened once. So I'm going to tell you the same thing again. He just says the same struggle over again. So we don't miss this point. This is a repeated struggle. I want to do good, but I don't. I know what I should do, but I don't do the stuff I should do. I do the stuff I know I shouldn't do. There's sin in me. There's, there's this evil in me. I delight in the law of God, in this inner man where I'm seated with Christ. But there's this war in my body. And he starts here, I like this, the war against the law, the principle of my mind. The law of my mind is that I do what my brain tells my body to do. And Paul says, that's where the war is. There's a war in my mind. There's a war for my logic. Do I use my logic to justify doing this stuff I know I shouldn't do? Or do I believe God that doing life His way is actually better than justifying sin? That's, that's the war. And finally, just after going through, through that, Paul just... You know, just it's like he fall flops down on the floor. You can hear his anguish. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free or who will rescue me from this body of death? This old corpse that's tied to me that Christ killed. Consequently, when, when Paul calls himself wretched, he's not calling himself evil. Um, a synonym for wretched uh, would, be, would be more like miserable. Miserable, worn out, tired of this. Man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Now, can anybody relate at all to that, to that paragraph? Anybody find any, uh, any uh, 
any of themselves in that passage. We're really not supposed to read the Bible and think, you know, this is about me. But it's hard to not read that paragraph and think, holy smokes, this is about me. We probably, we've all felt like that failure, worthless. Um, we've probably even gotten to this point, who will rescue me, and thought this, how much of a rescue do I need? Like, am I even a Christian? Like, am I even saved? Am I even redeemed? Am I even justified? Whatever word you want to use. Surely a Christian shouldn't do what I just did. Wouldn't do what I just did. Couldn't do what I just did. And we've been there sick to death of ourself. Well, there's help. There's an answer to that question. Who will set me free from this body of death? Paul's going to dive into the answer to that question more next week. He's just going to touch on it this week. So we'll touch on it this week. So Come back next week for the rescue, okay? But there are some great, important, and even wonderful things to learn from Paul's struggle that's our struggle. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about four things we learn from this struggle. First one is this. If that struggle describes you, and you just said it did, That might be because you're a Christian. Now wait, what, Maxwell? Did you just say my sin makes me a Christian? No, 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 no. I did not. I don't want you to think that I'm okay with your sin, that God's okay with your sin, that your sin no longer matters because of grace. May it never be. But if you struggle against sin the way Paul described him struggling against sin, that is the struggle a Christian struggles. If you find yourself broken hearted over your sin, and listen, not broken hearted because someone else who cares about your sin found out about your sin. That's different. If you find yourself broken hearted about your sin, that may be because you're a Christian. This is a Christian struggle. I was shocked when I read uh, like commentaries and studied for this passage. How many people try to go through this paragraph and think, well, this had to be about Paul before he was ever a Christian? Because no Christian could ever, oh, this doesn't describe a Christian. What? If this doesn't describe Christians... Every one of us in here is lost as lost can be. But here's why this is a Christian struggle. Listen, to, I went through and counted how many times Paul says something that communicates this. I don't want to be like this. Right? I don't want to be like that, but I am. I want to be like this, but I'm not. Eleven times. For I don't understand what I'm doing, why I'm like this. I don't want, I don't do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. If I, if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. 
It's no longer me doing it. It's sin that lives in me. I know nothing good lives in me and my flesh. I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. I, for I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. If I do what I do not want, it's no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. So I find the law that when I want to do good, evil's present within me. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see a different, I see this, this law that we've talked about, wretched man that I am, and at the end here, verse 25, I serve the law of God with my mind. Over and over and over, I've got this desire to be good, to be better, to do the law. Listen, that's not a desire non-Christians have. It's just not. Right? If you didn't have the Holy Spirit living in, you wouldn't care. You would only care if people found out. Listen to what Paul says here. I underline two things. I agree that the law of God is good. That's not what someone who's not a justified believer in Christ thinks. People think the law is a giant drag. It takes away all their fun. Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. If I have, I want to be what God described as the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and makes us want to be like that. Paul's heart is one of being heartbroken because he knows God's way is best. And I've blown it again. If you struggle, that struggle. It doesn't mean you're not saved or redeemed. Point number two. It proves you are human still. And that's a good thing. The struggle proves we're human. We are not yet glorified. That day is coming. That day is coming. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, do you know God is not merely going to take you to be where he is, though he's going to do that. The Lord is going to make you to be like he is. That's what's coming. This is a temporary struggle. We're not going to be perfected in this life. Some of us get taught that. That just, that just only winds up in deceiving myself and other people into thinking that's true. You're not going to make it in this life. But if you believe in Jesus, you are going to make it to the next. And he is going to rip out of you any desire that doesn't match the perfect law of God. In the meantime, We're a little bit like those cows with the open gate. We have got to learn and to believe that freedom is out there. Not back here. I know the feedlot's easier. 
so to speak. But it ain't better. And there's a slaughterhouse at the end of that. And Paul asks, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's just talking about his human body. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul really sums up this part of the very last words of this chapter. Paul says, I myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And one way or another, to one extreme or level or another, that's going to be our life. You know, this is so true. If you read all of Paul's letters, I highly recommend them. They're great. You'll find something interesting about Paul's estimation of himself. Paul Paul's estimation of himself and his morality didn't get better after he came to Christ. You ever notice that? Like Paul's estimation of himself got worse. Galatians 1, first chapter he ever wrote of anything that we have in our script, in our Bible. He says, man, back I was under the law, I was, I was blameless under the law. Is that a correct statement? Not ultimately. Paul says, nobody knew the law better than me. Nobody tried harder than me. And then before long, Paul is saying, I am the chief of all sinners after I came to Christ. Why is that? Is it because Paul's sin no longer matters and he just sins whatever sins he wants? No. It's when the commandment came home to Paul, like he talked about last week. When I, when I walk, not separated from God, but when I walk in the light, that, that glorious white light of, the, of the, the, the purity of God illumines the sin within me. And, I, and, I, and Paul realizes, I'm shot through with this stuff. And I, I came to Christ. Well, me, my, my language cleaned up. You know, I used to cuss like a sailor. And when I first started being discipled, that one went away. And if, but when that went away, it's not like, I, oh man, I licked that. Just like, look at all the rest of this stuff. The closer we get to Christ, it's not we get to the point where, boy, I don't sin much anymore. Again, if, that's, if, that, was, if, that, if that is what you think, you're just not holding that mirror close enough. It just becomes, man, God hates, God hates my self-righteousness. God, God hates how I spend his resources to make me look impressive. God hates uh, my smugness toward other people. He hates, uh, my, um, hates my laziness. or he hates, just, It's more and more. It's always there. That's why this is always going to be the struggle, and it's why Paul does not say what sin he's talking about. Because even if he gets through that one with Christ, there will be more. And we should grow in Christ. We shouldn't be struggling with all the same sins today that we struggled with a year ago. We shouldn't be struggling all the same struggles five years from now that we are today. We should grow. But we're not going to lick this thing. It's really the third thing that this passage, this struggle shows us, that proves to us knowing the rules is not enough. It's not enough. 
Do you think before you became a Christian, could you get good enough that God was going to be impressed with you and love you based on your behavior? Yes or no? Could you get that good? No. After you're a Christian, that still holds. Your only hope with appearing good enough to God is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that you become a Christian, there's more rules and more condemnation when you break the rules and more severe punishments and self-flagellation and hatred. Is that how you're going to really lick sin this time? It didn't work before. We grow in Christ. We do not grow in the law. We grow in the Spirit and in Christ. More on that in future sermons. Accountability can be a part of our fight and our growth. But lots more stricter rules and punishments when we fail are just going to result in hiding and deceiving other people and myself. What we want, we want the righteousness trophy. Look what I got. We want the badge. We want the thing that says, good enough, I did it. No dice, sinner. We wear his badge or we get no badge at all. And finally, the first three points is what makes the fourth point so important. This struggle makes us long for rescue. I know this is our struggle. I know this is your struggle. I honestly hope it's your struggle. If it's not, you either think you licked sin and you haven't, or you don't care. Neither of those is good. When we're in this struggle, it just makes us, who will rescue me? We know the answer. Jesus, rescue me. The struggle makes us long for the rescuer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says. We have a rescuer. His name is Jesus. There is freedom in him from lots of the sins we currently sin. There is. It's growth. Uh, We should be growing. Don't hear me wrong. We're never going to lick this thing, this sin thing, until he licks it for us and glorifies us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, thank you that this passage is in our Bibles. Thank you that the Apostle Paul struggled this struggle. God, help us struggle this struggle. Fight the good fight. But Lord, teach us in the coming weeks how to fight that in the Spirit and not via the law. Help us walk with you that you might shape us more and more into the likeness of your Son. God, thank you for forgiveness and grace in all our failings. God, win for us the battle of our mind. And God, thank you for already giving us the rescue that we already have while we fight. In the name of the rescuer, our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.